HCC, how are you doing? You're like, we're here, we're here. It was actually great. This place was packed earlier today with our one conference at hundreds of volunteers from all over our campuses that joined together just to kind of be re-energized, be renewed as we begin a new ministry. We kind of work on a school year calendar in a lot of ways. So today was just a really rich time to kick that off. So if you were a part of that, good to see you back. If you weren't, I'm glad you're here with us tonight. I want to welcome you guys here in Powell. For those of you guys watching online, a big welcome to you as well. And I wanted to say thank you. You've been great as we were walking into some deep waters over the last couple of weeks. We're in week three of a series, just like the video showed us about handle with care, that when it relates to our sexuality, God is the creator and designer. And so therefore we want to listen to what he has to say about how his creation is supposed to function. And so we've been going into these spaces that Often churches, for a host of reasons, just choose not to make a point of, and I'm grateful you've had great attitudes as we've taken on some topics that have some really significant uh, just value, but also significant kind of weight. So thanks for treading into that with us. And if you're here for the first time, you have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) You're like, hmm, what's this all about? But you'll find out in a minute. So as we dive into week three, I just want to let you know, this is the last week of this five-week series that I'll be in this mode of opening God's word and talking to you, walking you through. And then the next two weeks, I'm really excited about an opportunity to sit down with some people and hear their story and their story of how God has worked through difficult situations related to sexuality and what he has redeemed. Because I feel like there's so many of us that are gonna have opportunities to relate to what they've gone through and what they're going through and what God is still redeeming today. So please make plans to be with us the next two weeks as we wrap up the series. If you have a Bible, would you make your way to Genesis 1? Um, uh-huh, like every week we've been in Genesis 1. But we'll start there again, have your notes ready to go. We'll dive in in just a second. And the reason why we're doing this series is because we know that our culture is screaming all kinds of different messages and ideas and opinions about what you should do or believe about your sexuality. But what we want to do in this series is simply echo what the creator of your sexuality has to say. And because he tells us it's such an important topic and one that is so incredibly powerful in our lives and in the lives of people we interact with. Therefore, we need to approach it with a, a sense of awe, a sense of holiness, the idea that it is a holy sexuality. And also, like our theme series title is, we need to handle it with care. So we're going to dive in today. And to me, one of the most significant things that I wanted to spend some time on before we were done with the teaching aspect of this series relates to the idea of how often our culture tells us this idea that who you are is who you're attracted to. That is the sum, that is the most significant thing of your identity is your sexuality, specifically who you're attracted to, your orientation. And what I wanna say is I believe that the church, not just High Desert Church, but the Big C Church has actually bought into that lie as well. And we will often look at someone or look at a couple and we will say they are a, or they are, and the most important thing that pops out to you about them is who it appears they're sexually attracted to. 
And I wanna help us today dive in to understand from God's word that who we're attracted to is not the most important part about our identity and about our being, but it all relates back to where Genesis 1 has begun with, this idea that we're made in the image of God. So we're gonna dive into our notes. You have your Bibles open, ready to go. Let's take a look. Number one, you and every person you come in contact with is an image bearer of God. You and every single person you come in contact with is an image bearer of God. We're in Genesis 1, back to familiar verses, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we're, we're in it now. This is definitely a pattern. Every week, we're beginning in Genesis 1 because we believe it to be so foundational, so fundamental to our being. And today we dial back into this idea. We've looked at different parts of those two verses, but today we pay a special attention. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. What does that mean to be an image bearer of God? And as we look at this, we see from the very beginning in the created order, it doesn't say that humans were made as God, as though that we are one and the same, but it says there's something about the way that we are unique and distinct from all other created beings, that we are made uniquely in the image of God. There's nothing else in the created order that gets that kind of description or distinction, but just you and me, just us as humans. So in that, we try to understand, so what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And I think one of the best ideas, Pastor Kurt had this idea in our teaching team today, was that of a mirror, that idea of a reflection. And though when we think of a mirror, we think of like, this is what I look like. We're not saying that we are what God looks like. And I'm saying, praise God, he does not look like me, right? That's a good thing. But in that, what we're saying is there's something about what we are that reflects the character and the nature of God. There's something about, and watch this, that's true of every human being. Every human being, there's something innate about them that reflects the inherent character and the nature of who God is. And obviously just looking at a mirror, this doesn't, if it were a one-to-one -one of God to his created beings, it, a mirror can never express all of who I am in this one reflection. But it gives you a piece, it gives you an idea of the whole. So this is the idea that we're talking about. That's what it means to be an image bearer, is made in the image of God, to, to be this that reflects. But the thing that we know, and keep this tension in mind, every human being an image bearer of God, but also be mindful, every human being a fallen sinner. Adam and Eve initially in the garden reflected to whatever degree God perfectly wanted humanity to reflect his character and nature. But Genesis three comes very quickly in our Bibles and we realize that at the fall, everything gets broken begins with people, it goes, extends to all created beings, to all of the created order. Romans 8 says that everything is in a cycle of decay, breaking down as a result of sin, nothing unaffected. 
so as we think about that, and now as that relates to us, now we have a problem. We are image bearers, but deeply marred, deeply polluted, deeply broken. And so I think of what's the contrast to this mirror reflecting the image of God is now this. And what was able to reflect, at least in some way, who God is now just fragments, just pieces. It's super distorted, very hard to see anything that would reflect what what really is behind this. And this is a good example of what now is in our state. And this boils back down to, to what one of the authors on our resource page, Christopher Yuan, he mentions, he kind of plums a little bit of what we've come to know as original sin. Look at this quote. Original sin is the sinful state and condition in which every person is born. In other words, we have a polluted nature. It means that our nature has been corrupted by sin. And look at this last line, a condition that produces only more sin. So we have a problem. Not only are we sinful at our core, but we're sinful in our behaviors and it keeps evidencing itself. And so the person who is doing life on this planet completely apart from God through the saving work of Christ, they are a broken image bearer. There is vestiges of who they are that reflect who God is, but marred by sin. And then you have people who have put their faith in Christ and they are redeemed at this soulish level, but still have this problem of sin, no longer defined by it, no longer under its rule, but still a broken image bearer either way. And I learned as I was trying to process this idea, this was really important to me in the summer of 2020, right? When everything was going crazy. And I remember it was so easy during that time, both people on social media or on media or just people in your world, that it was so easy to become irritated by, frustrated by, and even think they are the enemy for the way they're acting and behaving. And one of the things that kept me steady as much as I could, definitely not perfect, but kept me steady was trying to remind myself in every interaction, remind myself in every conversation, remind myself in every post that I would see, this person is an image bearer of God, deeply loved and valued by him, though broken as we may be. And that helps keep me mindful of the fact that God is up to something and that there is a tarnished imago day in every one of us. But that thing is to be something we're to be mindful of, to be aware of, not just on this uh, horizontal level of valuing each other, but in interestingly reminding ourselves vertically, God deeply loves this person. No matter how far away they are from him, no matter how seemingly close. And this keeps us in this tension of realizing, God, you've made us to reflect you. We do a poor job, but we still have this inherent worth, though flawed in the way we express it. And so this has been helpful. And this is one of the things that, again, in the resources that we've talked about, multiple books, authors go to this idea. If you haven't heard, we want to remind you again, you can text the word laundry to 64567. What will come back to your phone is a a list of all of our resources. Two of our books that I'm going to especially spend time on 
today is Christopher Yuan's Holy Sexuality in the Gospel. And I absolutely love this book by Todd Wilson called Mere Sexuality. I'll mention it later today. These are a couple of many other resources. And we've said in this series that for you, if you're thinking Todd books are tough, I don't have time or I'm not a reader, whatever, every author, most every author we've included, here's a podcast to listen to, here's an article to read, and that will help you be at least introduced to someone you might wanna spend more time with in a book. But this is important that we begin today that every human being, those apart from Christ and those in Christ, reflect his image in marred ways and as a result of being made in the image of God are deeply loved and valued by him, no matter if they put their faith in Christ yet or not. The mistake comes to this is that when we begin to think that there's actually something else about us that is more important than our identity as an image bearer, we have a problem. In your notes, we mistake our God-given identity as image bearers when we replace it with anything different in that space. When anything different takes that space of realizing that we're image bearers of God, broken as we may be, then all of a sudden the equation goes even more wrong. Here's an example. I remember being a youth pastor my first couple of years in the other desert in Lancaster. And I remember just having two really squirrely junior high boys. Now, some of you would say, that's just what junior high boys are. Don't, it's like you're saying things redundantly. But these two in particular are really troublesome for me as I was trying to give leadership and whatnot. I just pulled them aside one night. I said, you guys, I just really wanna understand you. We're not clicking. You're really disruptive. What's going on? Tell me about who you are. I'll never forget this one kid looks at me. But remember, this is the other high desert. He looks at me and goes, bro, I'm just like a snowboarder, dude. That's who I am. And first of all, I had no idea why he told me that because it did not answer my question. But more importantly, I thought, here's a desert kid telling me he's defined by the snow. And I'm thinking, then you don't have much of a life outside of two or three months a year. I don't know what else you must be. And as silly as that may sound, now all of a sudden when we put our career, I'm a, we put our role as a husband or a wife, I'm a, we put our role as a parent, I'm a, we put our role in the distinction of different achievements we have. We even put our failures in this space and we say, these are what define me. Anything I drop in that space that says, this is who I am, different than an image bearer of God, breaks down very, very quickly, especially when we put in our sexual attraction. This is one of the things when I was doing some research this week, getting ready for our time together today, I did a little uh, research. The very typical Webster's definition of the phrase sexual orientation says it's commonly defined as a person's identity. A person's identity in relation to the gender or genders to which they are sexually attracted. Can you just hear me today? The most important part of who you are is not who you're attracted to. The most important part of who you are is not who you're sexually attracted to. It's the God who created you to be one who bears his image. Who you are is not who you're attracted to. You are a loved, valued, created being made to reflect the creator to your world. And what I wanna do is I wanna take a look with you today. How did we get so far off the mark? Number two in your notes, sin. 
Sin has caused us to be confused about our own identity and the identity of others. Sin has caused us to be confused about our own identity and the identity of others. When we're talking about a passage related to problems with our understanding of our identity, problems with our understanding of God's design for our sexuality, Romans 1 seems to be an integral place in your Bible we need to go. If you have a Bible, make your way there. In the New Testament, what's that? Sixth book in the New Testament, chapter 1. Make your way there because I want you to see Paul lines out, he takes the idea of Genesis 3 when the fall happens and says, if this is how it happened originally, let me show, it, show you how it happens in cultures. Let me show you how it happens in groups of people and what they begin to do, not just what happened originally in a garden. And when I, for Todd, what helps me when I see the decay and the fallout in our world, I am constantly thinking in my mind, it's another example of the slide presented in Romans 1. There is this plane that is angled downward that just keeps happening. And every time I see it, I go, God, that's another example of what you went out ahead and told us. This is how it goes when a group of people deny God his rightful place as creator and Lord over their lives. This is what it looks like. We'll begin chapter one, verse 21. For although they, talking about just humanity, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. I want you to see, we're gonna walk quickly through this passage, but I want you to see some important things. I want you to see the way initially that humanity actively dismissed God from their lives. These are action verbs and they're powerful because we realize that this slide didn't happen passively. This slide didn't just take place, it actually was active decisions that people made. It begins with, they neither glorified God, meaning they didn't recognize his value and worth, nor gave thanks to him. Did not thank him for who he is and what they'd done for him. As a result, they're futile, their hearts became dark and their thinking became skewed, became futile. They claimed to be wise, but became fools in the process. And in this last part, they exchanged the glory of Almighty God for images that look like what he created. They exchanged the relationship and the valuing of the creator and began to value created things or things that look like them. Image bearers exchanged the value of the creator for images of creation. These actions become the headwaters of what's to come the ensuing consequences that will roll as a result of people dismissing God. See again the active steps that are made. We pick it up in verse 24. Therefore, and remember every time we see in the Bible the word therefore, we ask what's it there for? It's a summary statement. As a result of what we've just said, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. More active statements, this time it begins with God. God, it takes an active role. He gave them over. He simply took his hands off 
and allowed people to go their own way. It's a fascinating reality to think of what God is doing as he is guiding human history and what happens in a scenario where simply God backs away and simply says, go ahead. God gave them over and resultingly, they would eat the fruit of what these sinful desires craved. Sexual impurity demonstrated in the degrading of their bodies with one another. This is what one of the initial fallouts was, is they began to engage in, sexual, in their sexual behavior in a way outside of God's design. And when we remember what we looked at last week, when we looked at God's design, intended to be something of beauty, intended to be a gift, intended to be one that connects people and makes them one in the covenant of marriage, instead now became ruined. This isn't that. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And so you have another active phrase now in the part of these folks. So they exchanged the truth. And when we see the destruction, we see this all the time, right? Anytime that we absorb or we take on, this is what I'm going to do, or this is what the truth is, aside from God's design, there are always a sequence of consequences that we face. We always start with the wrong equation and we get bad things as a result. The math goes bad every time. They worshiped and served other, other created beings rather than the creator. Again, very active words. This isn't passive like it just happens. They actively exchanged these things instead of God. They never stopped worshiping, and I want you to catch that. It didn't say that they stopped worshiping and then started engaging with these other things. It says they just simply changed the focus of their worship. That's a really important thing. Sometimes when we think of worship, we have very narrow ideas of what that means. But to me, I love this definition. It means to be preoccupied with something. Preoccupied not just in thought, but in action, in response. So rather than being preoccupied with who God is, his rightful place in their lives, they began being preoccupied with lesser things things that he actually had created or things that look like them. They became obsessed with the creation, not the creator. In your notes, it reminds us that all people everywhere are worshipers. All people everywhere are worshipers. The only question is of what or whom. So it's not a question of does someone worship? They do. It's just simply what's the, the point? What is the focus of that worship? What are they giving themselves to? And in this text, we see that humanity started giving itself to anything but the one who rightfully deserved their honor and their focus. So if these concepts describe what begins to go wrong, how it goes back to the idolatry of images of ourselves and of other created beings, the Apostle Paul communicates how other aspects of destruction would ensue providing an understanding of why we all need Jesus because we're so broken on our own. Continues the thought in verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Don't forget that Paul is building a case. He just kind of starts with the foundation and keeps building the building. And it begins with the idea that sin has already entered in the equation when men and women decided to disregard him and to make themselves or other parts of creation their focal point. This is uh, these repercussions then just continue to ripple out. 
And let's be clear about a couple things related to same-sex behavior described in this passage. It begins with another active statement, a second time, God gave them over. God let the handles off and let them simply do as they pleased. The absence of God's restraint and allowing people their own way, can I just tell you, that is not a good thing. In the verses previously, the letting go of God resulted in people degrading themselves and their bodies with one another, and they chose sexual immorality instead of God's covenant design in marriage. But now this distortion demonstrates something different, a same-sex attraction and behavior that further violates God's design of sex between one man and one woman in marriage, to now a sexuality that we noted in the text calls it unnatural and not according to God's biological design, as well as that which, like everything else outside of his design, results in consequences. This isn't the only passage in the Bible that speaks to the topic of same-sex behavior or attraction, but I want you to watch the flow and sequence that Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, another author who is on our resource list, who is a former lesbian who was won over to the gospel, and I love this, through the hospitality of a pastor and his wife. They just started loving her, started inviting her to their, their home, started really caring for her, and that's where the seeds of the gospel were planted, were in an oikos relationship. Now as a Christian, <clears throat> see the way she sums up what we're looking at in Romans 1. Don't miss this progression. The first exchange is glory for corruption. The second is truth for lies. And the third is natural relations that are life-giving for unnatural relations that are death-producing. These three exchanges serve as a parallel to the three kinds of sin that capture our hearts and see these, these distinctions Original sin, we talked of that earlier today, leaves us with a desire for that which God hates. Actual sin hardens our heart and darkens our soul with each and every transgression. And look at this last one. An indwelling sin traps us into thinking. That's a key phrase. It's not true what we begin to believe it, that we cannot mortify a sin that dwells within us because this sin is indistinguishable from who we are. I don't just do sinful things. It radiates because it's who I am. I have embraced this new identity. I have embraced this orientation and it's simply the overflow of something that cannot be stopped. You've heard us in this earlier this month talk about rooted and one of the things we love about rooted is it introduces us to the language of things like repentance over strongholds. And this is exactly what this quote is talking about when I feel like I'm so connected to the sin that I'm living out that there's no way to separate it. And even more, it becomes my identity. We started today. The most important thing about us is that we're image bearers of God, broken as we may be, but intrinsically loved by God because of that. I want you to see some other things that distinguish same-sex immoral behavior from heterosexual immorality as we walk through this passage. But I also want you to see this. I want you to see some things that the Big C Church has gotten wrong. God just demonstrated to me a long time ago that as we begin to see things related to same-sex behavior, 
as kind of this own category of these are the biggest sins, this is the most egregious, I don't know if God can forgive kind of category. We have made a huge mistake. Number one, because the Bible does not present it that way. But number two, because then it ripples out into different ways that affect us, different ways that we view people who are currently in lifestyles of same-sex behavior. And we've elevated it to a place of sinfulness that scripture doesn't. And then we have a problem. And one of the things that I wanted to tell you that helped me in that process, one of the other authors in our resource list, his name is Mark Yarbrough. I just said that wrong, Yarhouse, sorry, Mark Yarhouse. He's so important to me, I can't remember his name. Uh, I went to two different lectures that Mark provided. He was an, he's an incredible guy, he's an academic. He is um, a therapist who only works with high school age students and he is an elder in his church. And I just love this combination. He's highly complicated in terms of who he is. And I just love the, the thoughtfulness, the biblical approach he brings to subjects that for many of us, we don't know how to process biblically. And one of the things I appreciated Mark saying is he said, I spend so much time with high school students. Well, let me recapture the reason why many of us are especially frustrated. Pride Month, just a couple months ago, is because it is brought to an attention, brought to your face, brought to a political, cultural value that you get really irritated by. And can I tell you, that the more that you think that people who are same sex attracted are all a part of that machine, the harder it is to actually love people. That was true of me. And I remember hearing Mark say that of the people he sits down and talks with these young people, young adults, he told us that on so many occasions, these are not people who are trying to champion something, not people who are trying to get awareness of how everyone needs to be like them. These are people who would much rather change their attraction if they could. And this isn't attention that they want. And this isn't something that they're doing to get attention. It's something they're trying to deal with and not be, not be identified, not be um, defined by. And then as I began to have counseling appointments with people who are same-sex attracted, man, that was so helpful for me. So helpful to sit across my office from someone who would just say, Todd, this is so difficult to walk out. This isn't something I asked for. It's not something I'm proud of, but I don't know what to do with it because I want to honor God. Those kinds of conversations, while that might not represent every person, it gave me the ability to love and to be compassionate in a way I'd never been before. And I was so grateful for that. And I have a feeling that some of you are struggling with the same reality. So I just wanna help you with that. As we process this out and think through these layers and try to go, God, what am I to do with this? What does this mean in my life? What does it mean in the lives of the people that I interact with? Can I just come back to this? Is that rather than put people in a category that not even the Bible does, would we instead go, God, there's a broken image bearer in there. 
just like there is in this person and that person and this person. Would you help me to see that? Would you help me to value that? And would you help me to realize how much all of us need you, how much all of us need the way that you can bring us back to you, make us right? One of the things I told you last week was Pastor Kurt and I were going to do a tangible takeaways episode on singleness and celibacy. We did that last week. It was made available on Wednesday morning. One of the things we talked about, and this is a very key issue to think about, if somebody has a same-sex attraction, an obvious question, if you walk that out, especially from Romans 1, of what am I to do? I have this attraction, but do I have freedom to live that out? Am I not supposed to? What of that? And one of the things that was helpful is I've just tried to process throughout this series, and again, back to counseling appointments, is that because we don't put the sin in its own unique category that's bigger and badder than everything else, but instead we talk about it, what of the person who is married and wants to be involved with somebody else sexually? What of the person who is struggling to consider other types of deviations from God's design sexually? We put them all under the same umbrella. The reality is, is that we go back to God's design. It is one man, one woman in a covenant of marriage for their lifetimes. And that's, it's narrow, I know but that is God's design. So as a result, the biblical encouragement would be just like every other case, when we're outside of God's design, I have an option and that is to live according to it. And so if my future doesn't include being married, God's called me to singleness and celibacy. Two of the authors, Christian, Christopher Yuan and Sam Alberry, who are on that resource list, are both same-sex attracted men who've given their lives to Christ and have taken on a lifetime of celibacy as a result. And I say that to you to say, and this is one of the problems we'll look at before we're done today, if we believe like our culture has communicated to us that you're not really human, you're not really a full person until you've been involved sexually, then we'll see that celibacy is cruel. But if instead we'll pull back and we'll say, God, what is your design? And we'll see anything outside of that means that I'm not involved sexually. Then we'll realize that God's design is perfect and has meaning and value. And we'd say that to anyone who fits that same challenge that people are facing. And it comes back to this. Look at this passage in, on the screen from Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. There's always, always consequences for sin. But look at this last line. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. That is the differing work that God is doing, not just through his word, but in his indwelling spirit, once we placed our faith in Christ. Look how Paul finishes the flow of thought in Romans 1, back to verse 28. This is where it all goes wrong. Furthermore, just as they did not think worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they, ought not do, they, they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. 
They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. That sounds like my kids growing up. They disobey their parents. That sounds like my kids growing up. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do the very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Like I told you before, when I see our society sliding down, I just go, God, you've told us this was gonna happen in Romans 1. When we deny you your rightful place as not just creator, but authority over our lives, the ripple effects just lead. And isn't it interesting, all that I read at the end, what, what, list, what isn't on that list of the ways that sinful people behave towards one another and towards God? But notice at the headwaters, it all began with idolatry of worshiping, valuing, being preoccupied with things other than God and quickly went to sexual immorality, quickly went to same-sex behavior and then the onslaught. So it's interesting to note that our sexuality is part of the headwaters of where everything below flows from. This is what God says what happens when he backs away and lets people do as they please. I want to bring some good redemption to our time today. Number three, our brokenness is as tarnished image bearers can be redeemed in Jesus. <clears throat> our brokenness as tarnished image bearers can be redeemed in Jesus. Romans 5, we were in this passage earlier about how death entered, sin entered the world through one man. This is more of that passage. Verse 18, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Jesus provided the answer for our sin problem. And he did it when he obediently went to the cross, died at the hands of sinful men, but did not die as though something were happening to him, offered his life in exchange, somehow had the ability to be that sin offering, that atoning sacrifice for sins of the people on the planet then, the sins of everyone who had preceded and us today. But what I want you to see as we close our time today isn't only that what Jesus can redeem by his obedience and going to the cross and then being raised from the dead on the third day, but I actually want you to go, I want you to back up into the earlier part of his life and I want you to think about the sinlessness that made him be available to take away our sin. Specifically this, I want you to think about what can we learn from God's intent for our sexuality from Jesus's sexuality. What can we learn about God's intent for our sexuality from Jesus's sexuality? Now, those are two words. Even earlier today, we talked about ours is to be a holy sexuality. Those are two words that usually don't go together. Jesus and sexuality don't usually go together either. I was sharing it with some, we were talking as a teaching team, I think it was earlier this week, and we realized what is the reason why we don't associate Jesus and sexuality? I think there's a couple, 
But maybe one of the biggest ones is because we believe according to scripture that Jesus was never sexually involved with a woman. That's totally true. But when did someone's sexuality only become realized once they have sex? You see, Jesus had a masculinity, Jesus had a sexuality, whether he was involved sexually or not. And this last idea to me is so powerful because as we process it, we come back to a couple things. Maybe another reason, by the way, that when you think of Jesus and sexuality and they don't go together, it's because you're not really convinced that Jesus was 100% human. We might believe he was 100% God, but we struggle in the intricacies of what does it mean that Jesus actually took on flesh and walked this out just like us? Because I want you to hear the Bible would tell us so. Hebrews chapter two, verse 17, for this very reason, he being Jesus had to be made like them, fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He had to be made completely human. That means that Jesus had all of the male parts. Jesus had the testosterone running through his body. Jesus went through puberty. You're like, oh my gosh, I just kind of jumped to 30. I never thought about that part. Okay, Jesus went through, every, and here's the beauty of it. That's why he does not say somewhere from an ivory tower, it must be hard at times to be human. He can say with full experience. He was made like us in every single way. Jesus definitely had a sexuality. And so if Jesus is our example in every facet, right? We look to Jesus, not just as the one who atoned at the cross, but to be the one that we live according to his example, then what can we learn from Jesus's sexuality? Because he, he is our example in every way. And we realize that this idea has not only happened when Jesus took on flesh, but here's the wild thing. His resurrection body that people interacted with on Easter Sunday, this same body is a body that he's gonna carry into all eternity. Listen to Todd Wilson from Mere Sexuality. When the Son, capital S, chose a Y chromosome and embraced human flesh, he did so forever, never to take it off or hang it up like an old worn out coat. Our humanity, including our sexual difference, has become an intrinsic part of who God the Son is and who God the Son will be forever. That is powerful. That is a huge reason why your sexuality matters to God. Because when his Son came and took on flesh, he took on every part of it, valuing who we are and understanding what it is that we go through. Here's two wild things that ring true from this idea. Watch this. He lived a life that was completely fulfilled, completely satisfied and content, but was never involved with anyone sexually. His identity as a man was not tied to a sexual experience. Again, from Todd Wilson, we learn that sexual activity isn't essential to human flourishing or personal fulfillment. Jesus found contentment with his sexuality in the pursuit of chastity and celibacy. 
to be blunt, he didn't need sex. Not because sex is sinful or somehow beneath his dignity, but because sex isn't essential to being human. And I gotta tell you, when I read this passage for the first time, I just sat there and resonated with it. But I wanna tell you, have you ever heard anything like that in our culture? You aren't complete if you're not involved sexually. You're not a man or a woman if you're not involved sexually. And as we process this idea that Jesus is our example in everything, it's powerful to realize sex is not the defining thing of any person, primarily because it wasn't the defining thing of our example and our savior. The reality is, by the way, do be sure that the Bible says that Jesus absolutely, though, was tempted sexually. Don't think again, there's nothing to neuter. There's nothing to go, oh, he was just kind of faking it. Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. What isn't included under that umbrella? Tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach the God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Can I tell you how beautiful is that last line? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Man, that's so good. And I wanna remind you, this is the beauty of everything that we're looking at. God knows Jesus knows exactly what it is to be tempted. Jesus knows exactly what it is to be human. God knows that we are but dust and that we fail. But when we realize who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf, not just at the cross, but in his sinless life, it gives us confidence to come before his throne to, to receive the mercy and the grace that we need. Man, you guys, that is such great news. Because your identity, identity is found primarily in being a redeemed image bearer of God, let him inform the way you understand yourself and others. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father God, we wanna say thank you. There is, again, so much in your word related to your design your desire for our sexuality. And I can understand when I think of the people on my Oikos that don't know you, don't have the truth of your word in their lives, it is all up for grabs. It is just go the best way you can, figure it out as you go. That makes sense to me. And God, I'm so glad that we're not left just bouncing around from wave to wave, idea to idea, fad to fad, but we have your enduring truth that speaks loudly to us as much as the very day it was written. And we need it. We need to know your design so we can live according to it. Not just to be obedient, even though that's important, but God, this is always for our good because you are such a good father. You may be here today and you would say, Todd, not only is my sexuality a mess, my whole life is. And this God that you're talking about, if there's a way to also be made right through Jesus, I know I need that. 
Would you admit what you already knew when you walked in the door today, that you're a sinner who needs a savior? Though God created everything in Genesis 1 absolutely perfect, including the human race, because of sin's entrance in Genesis 3, you are marred by sin both at who you are and what you do. So would you admit that to be true? Would you be believe? Would you believe that Jesus is the only, only savior available? There's no other roads to the top of some religious mountain. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Would you believe that to be true? Would you see change, to choose? Would you choose to say, Jesus, I put my confidence and my hope in what you've done at the cross and the empty tomb, and I wanna live the rest of my life following your example. You can make that decision. You can pray those ABCs today, and I just pray, don't let another day go by. God, this week in a culture that is screaming all kinds of dissonant messages, would your way light our path? And would your way be the way in which we walk? We love you and we pray in Jesus' great name, amen.